This podcast was recorded on Friday, September 21st, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. Today I'm here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, he's got a new intro, it sounds like. So uh, welcome, Sam. Thank you. Okay. And we have a repeat guest with us today, infamous Mr. Joe Galligan. Hey there. Hi, how are you doing? All right. So those of you not familiar with Joe, Joe is uh, Executive Vice President here at Double Line, working in the mortgage arena for uh, many decades now. And uh, he's here to educate us with some more pearls and wisdom. So thanks for stopping by again, Joe. My pleasure. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Yeah. A couple well, of hours. Maybe. Yeah, no, it's been a couple hours, hours, but at least we, uh, at least since you've been on the show. In the show. Okay, yeah, yes. Right? yes. So we wanted to kind of follow up on the last time. You know, you told us some good anecdotes. We talked about some stories and lessons learned in the marketplace. And um, as we came off of 2017, a year of low volatility, and you weren't really rewarded for diversification. Yeah, you had a little less vol than some other folks, but almost any bet one took last year really paid off pretty well. So I think we want to talk about today is kind of, you know, educating the younger set, things that you help do around the trading desk and you've, you've done throughout my career is give us some of these kind of pearls of wisdom. And so what I really wanted to start off with was um, I think you've always thought about like three pillars of risk, things that can hurt people. Maybe not pillars of risk, but perils uh, of things that put in your portfolio. They're not bad in doses, but if you get off sides, it can be bad. And those are leverage in portfolios liquidity or lack thereof and also talking about concentration or lack of concentration if you want to put three l's on it but why don't we talk about leverage first why do you warn people about leverage and the dangers that can be associated with it give us some anecdotes there sure the simple answer is because leverage can kill i mean it really can and i think that the problem day-to-day investing is you get caught up in the investing and focusing on the here and now and focusing on the yield and these what-if scenarios and every day that it doesn't happen, it's like, see, that didn't happen. But eventually things will happen. And the problem is you don't know exactly what will happen, but you know something will happen. And you kind of forget it will happen, if, right? If, and the longer, it's like, hey, we live here in California, and the further we've been since the last earthquake, people we don't people don't talk about earthquakes anymore. But guess what? It's going to happen. And then when it happens for the next year or two, every day they'll be talking about it. But the idea is that leverage kills and that it brings more risk onto the portfolio. And the more leverage you have, the riskier it is. And you may say, well, that sounds pretty obvious. And, and the story that I'll share is because it's the 10, we just passed the 10, 10 year anniversary of Lehman Brothers going down. And I'm a bond guy. I, I, I don't know much about stocks. I just don't. I spend my time looking at bonds. And I remember it was in the early 2000s. And so you see, you know, you sit in front of the, the Bloomberg and then the news comes across and it was every quarter, every investment bank and every commercial bank had record earnings. And they only to be surpassed by next quarter, next quarter. I'm like, you know, I just I keep seeing that. What the heck's going on? And and now when I look back, what was happening essentially was that they were leveraging up their balance sheet. 
So leverage works in your favor when markets stay flat, assuming you're positive carry or asset valuations are going up. That's sort of the good part of leverage. But there's risk that goes along with that and that it just means if when things go down, it magnifies your results either way. And so what was happening, and I don't know because they didn't release it as far as how levered they were, and they wouldn't, it wasn't their best interest. But I believe that when they went bankrupt, when they went down, the investment banks and the commercial banks in 2008, I believe they're around 40 times levered. And I asked people, I was asked people, they sort of say, and I think that was sort of the number. By comparison today, I think there's somewhere between 10 and 15 times leverage. So I actually view right now as much less risky than back then. So let's explain that to our listeners. 40 times leverage. So what kind of loss can you take on a 40 times leverage portfolio before you're out of business? Two and a quarter percent, two and a half percent, two and a half percent. Yeah, yeah I mean, not much. That's amazing, right? Think about that. I mean, that's like the daily tick it's, right now in Tilray. It's, it's, yeah, about, right? it's crazy. And on top of that, it was, and I, here I'm going to like slam the equity, our equity brethren, is that Back then, they had this concept of uh, off-balance sheet items, and they put these assets that they owned or liabilities or whatever, that part of the balance sheet, off-balance sheet, that they didn't have to report it because it, it could be too volatile and it could make earnings go up or down too much. And I'm like, I don't know anything about equities, but if the bank owns that, don't they own that risk? And the fact that it's in the closet, it's still there. I never understood that. I think with regard to being a, a U.S. citizen that we... And the only reason investors allow banks to get to 40 times leverage is because they felt that the government was going to bail them out. And in fact, the government did bail them out. So they're, I guess they're smarter than me. But I think as an American citizen, if, you know, if we're going to guarantee deposits, it's like, I'm not going to let you be 40 times leverage. I wouldn't let you be 10 times leverage if I have to bear that risk. But it is what it is. You don't get to make that decision. I don't get They didn't ask me. So they keep increasing the leverage. They keep getting better and better earnings, which means they keep buying more and more assets. And it actually comes back to the mortgage market here is that what they were doing was the asset that they were buying oftentimes was the non-agency mortgage. And we all sort of know what was sort of going on there. And the cracks in the wall from a pricing standpoint in the non-AT market really started in the end of 2007. We were seeing prices go down by like 5% and thinking, hey, for some of the stuff, some really good collateral looked pretty cheap. And the market feeling was that, well, 2007 was an anomaly, but 2008, things will get back on track. And then what happened in 2008 was that the realization by the marketplace that, wait a minute, the most levered investors out there are the investment banks and the commercial banks. And so obviously they're going to have to go through the process of deleveraging. And it really like the market sort of recognized that at the beginning of 2008 and prices started going down again. You know, it's funny you say that too, because I remember at that time too, I think it was right when there was cracks in the mortgage market, there was something called the CPDO. And it was a constant proportion debt obligation. It was like the CPPI stuff, the portfolio insurance they had before. And the premise behind it was that when prices went down, you borrowed more money to buy more assets. It was the buy the dip. It was the original buy the but dip. Was- and I think these products didn't even last like a few months, months. Uh, coming out because they were unveiled right at that point. So it's like you're using leverage to buy this assets. It's going down and you're just getting that. You're essentially opening yourself up to this perpetual margin call, right? Yes. Yeah. When 2008 came around, the one that was in the most trouble first off was Bear. And I'm going to go on the assumption. I don't know, but my guess is that they're all had the same amount of leverage. And what it was, was that I think why Bear went first is because they were most heavily concentrated in the non-agencies, sort of the epicenter. So they, they got margin called first 
Well, they also had a problem with a couple of their funds, their internal that, funds. That they too, were, in, right? yes, yeah, that and that they were invested. They were the balance. The, the bank was invested in their own proprietary funds, which I think. Yeah. Um, yeah I won't name names R- there, but uh, I do remember those. Ralph, Ralph. Or, yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. So that was, she goes, that was one of them. Yeah, yeah, we, won't, so. we won't use last names. So they went down and, and I remember that year and it was, it was actually a fun year for us because it was, you know, we were on the right side of the trade. We had, uh, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into sort of telling about liquidity issues later, but as it's one of your three perils or pillars. And so the summer's going on and problems are happening and it was, we're recognizing that short sellers in, on the stock side realized that every one of these, every one of these entities on a mark to market basis were bankrupt. And so if you're, I'm going to short the heck out of you. And the way to shut up the short seller is proving these wrong, proving that, but you couldn't prove them wrong because he was right. And so we're seeing these, I mean, the stocks are performing poorly. And I remember it was, so it was in September, sort of Lehman went next. And I would argue because they were the second most levered to that trade, but, but it was interesting. It was that I'm hearing this. I wasn't in the meeting that the heads of all the investment banks at that time, they got together with Goldman, Merrill, Morgan, and, and Lehman. What are we supposed to do? And somehow it, the idea came up is, you know, hey, you know, Lehman's pretty bad. Lehman's close to going out of business, but we have a much bigger fish to fry. And that is AIG because they're the counterparty to like trillions of dollars worth of derivatives. And then that would cause more havoc for the financial markets than Lehman Brothers. So Lehman went down. They saved AIG. And why do you think they saved AIG? Why, why do you think that AIG, why wouldn't you choose to save Lehman, the more well-known bank than this? entity that probably most of our listeners really haven't heard much about AIG. My guess is that it's easier to ring fence Lehman Brothers than because AIG had its tentacles everywhere. There was more risk there. It was better to focus on the AIG. Yeah. So we're talking about leverage and how it destroys at these massive multiples too. But when you have periods like last year in 17, leverage was your friend, right? Think yes. about that, yeah, yeah. you know, and you'd mentioned about AIG shorting volatility. Well, we all know what happened in February of this year when volatility spiked all these short sellers, which being a short seller inherently is like having some leverage, right? Because it doesn't just go to zero. Yes. Your losses can compound beyond yes. your initial kind of yes. capital state. So how does one think about this when talking about leverage versus like liquidity? You know, that's something we we're talking about here too, you know, bringing into the markets, when you have high liquidity, there tends to be high levels of leverage, right? Because it's available, there's money sloshing around, people want to keep earning it. When you have this kind of high leverage in the system, low volatility, how do you start to think about liquidity? And I would agree with you. And I think that the high levels of leverage actually, in the short run, increase liquidity from the sense that it means there's more money available. So there's more buying going on, there's more transactions. And the way it goes down to how do you define liquidity? And to many people, it should just be, oh, how many bonds trade today? What's the bid offered spread? And if there's a lot going on and when there's more leverage, so more money to be buying securities, it will seem like, and it will be in today's environment, there will be more liquidity. And there's a lot going on now with regard to testing for liquidity measures from a safety standpoint. And what are people's definition of liquidity? And some of the answers you get are, Average trading volume, bid offered spread. And I'm I'm like, I reject those from the following because I think the question, what they're really asking is, it's not what is liquidity today, but in the case of an event, what would the liquidity be? That's really what they're asking. And under that situation, the very fact that in the leverage, the dual-edged sword, it's the bad edge of the sword that's coming up, and that's gonna exasperate the situation. Yeah. 
And so that's really what you're trying to, that's what we do. We think all investors should do it. And I know you get tempted away from it by trying to focus on the current environment, pick up a little bit more yield for today. And you've told me in past some stories about thinking about liquidity and the price of risk out there too, when you've done that, right? So talk to me about how you think about that, how you take a current environment. Let's just say we're in either 06, 07, where you can't give money away fast enough, right? And everybody wants to invest and, you know, have massive amounts of liquidity or even like last year too. I mean, money sloshing around, central banks still pumping liquidity into the markets, right? Through their asset purchase programs. How do you start to quantify that when you think about it going forward? How do you start to build that in? Because maybe you only have a history of it being a bull market kind of uh, strategy, right? Which we we saw with the non-agency mortgage market, never really had stress in it prior to 06, for instance. Yes. Very tough because you're dealing with the future, that black swan type of event that who knows when it's going to happen, who knows what the epicenter is, and who knows what how it's going to reverberate. And I'll use the example that I remember is from when the non-agency market had its problems. And I'll tell you with regard to that, it's like, no, we could see in 05 and 06 housing having problems. But it wasn't, we were at a different firm, but it was for 10 to 15 years before that, we had concerns about non-agency securities, not predicting that real estate prices were going to fall tomorrow, but just say at some point, the time at which they do fall, it's going to be problematic for that market. Well, so how do you think about the models that people are using or pricing? I mean, because I mean, like you said, it was 10 to 15 years of trading that you may have been concerned about them. But how was the market treating these kind of probabilities or these loss rates upon the securities? I don't think they were enough, or maybe they were assigning such a low probability to that event happening. That would be my explanation. And the problem with models, what do they use models or how do they create models? They just regress them. How did things happen in the past? And is that because they happened that way in the past? Is that, is that they're going to happen that way in the future? I'd say categorically no. Even look at today. It's like, okay, we know what happened in 2008. We think we have problems economic financial problems, but we don't think it will be the same as that was 10 years ago, partly because there's much less leverage. Now we have bigger, different other issues. We actually have the leverage in the system, but the interesting thing is now the government has it's the leverage. It's the government leverage instead yeah. of financial yeah, leverage, so, right? But the leverage is still but there. But it's interesting because these securities existed. You have these pools, these diversified assets, and you're questioning the ratings agency's probability or something like that. But the really the, the issue became is that it was the, putting in another structure which created leverage as well to force unwind. So it really is that dual-edged sword. But how did the ratings agencies treat these securities? Let's say they came out, what, in the mid to late 80s? Is that my recollection? That's, that's, a, that's a question I'd like to ask them. Yeah. So Forget yeah, the, the CDO structure. I'm just going back to the underlying basic, asset. Yeah, you know? The underlying asset. Yeah. And so the non-agency market originated in the early 80s. And... You're trying to, okay, if I want to evaluate this, besides the voluntary prepayments, I got to look a little bit at the collateral and figure out what's going to happen involuntarily. So let me explain that to people out there because what you said is it's kind of a mouthful. So in the government guaranteed sector, if someone defaults, it shows back up to you as an investor as a prepayment. Yes. Yes. And if they also prepay, yes. that is, they pay more than just the scheduled amortization, that shows up as a prepay. Yes. So yes. both of those events show up as a good, or at least yes. money back to you yes. the same. Now you have to disentangle the two risks, yes. right? Yes. Okay. 
So I, I just you're, you're such yes. a mortgage expert. No, I got to make sure that we we make sure the audience understands. Yeah, everything. Sorry, okay. I apologize. Yeah, the rating agencies are okay. Now we've got a credit component to this, and how are we going to evaluate risk? And so this was it was sometime in the '80s. I, I don't know exactly when, but they're sort of looking for a disastrous case scenario or situation. And so it was after oil prices had dropped, and they referred specifically to the Texas oil patch because that was sort of a depression type of scenario localized in Texas, but or, or oil areas. Was this a study by the Dallas Fed or something? You know, right? <laughs> no. oh, anyway, no, sorry, but, sorry, bad, bad joke. No, but so the rating agencies, because they both came up with this, basically the same measure, as far as I can tell. I believe the uh, depreciation in real estate there was uh, order two to three percent. So that was the depression scenario. Wait, wait, yes. you said two to three, three, not twenty to thirty. Two to three, not on an annualized over over a period of time. No, that was, was a cumulative cumulative loss, two wow. to three percent. Okay. So wow. all right. So if I want to measure risk, it's like, okay, I know or, or my worst case I'm gonna lose two to three percent. So if I have four percent subordination, that should cover me. That's the old back test, just double the bat the worst yes, case. Yes, and yes, that's yes. as bad as it can ever get. Now here we are decades later, realizing how that really wasn't the worst case. But you didn't even have to wait decades because here in Southern California... Right. Didn't we, you own real estate in the early 90s? I, I did. I did. Thank yeah. you. So, sorry, I didn't mean in a bad way. I, I didn't live in L.A. in yeah. the early 90s. That's what I'm saying, but, but I've I heard do, the stories. I remember buying a house in 90... It was 93 or 94, yeah. and I bought it. It was down... Over thirty percent from where it had been a couple of years earlier. A couple wait, of years wait, wait, wait! I thought the worst scenario was two to three. Two to three. Yeah, well, it okay. was. So okay, now I've got this new information, and maybe I should incorporate that into my model. But that four percent never changed. So that's just bad. I mean, yeah, that's bad. That's amazing too that they would just ignore a vibrant economy. Was it just be? I mean, they always blame. Well, at least the story I always heard was. The aerospace industry leaving Los Angeles. And, yeah, that's what happened. And the Japanese and the Japanese real estate or yeah. the real estate investors. Just, yeah. Those two things together really hurt the area, yes, right? They did. But it seems like that's not just a one-off, right? I mean, those things no. happen. You have yeah. economic problems, yes. right? And I do remember fast forwarding to two thousand. Maybe it was nine or two thousand ten when the rating agencies were coming back to our visit our offices, and it's like. I want to hear their explanation for this. Right. You know, and they come up, mea culpa, mea culpa. And it's like, okay, now what's the next step? Basically, they turn the knob up on the dial and it's like, are you kidding me? That's sort of what you're doing? So, no, the one thing I will say is that now it's the point that they're ridiculous. People don't view them as any sort of, with regard to mortgages, as an efficient way of measuring risk. In fact, NAIC, National Insurance Companies, Basically, they regulate the insurance companies, and they realize the foolishness of that system or that model, and they came up with with a model that's very similar to how we do things, is that how much risk is in the security is a function of how much you pay for the security versus how much you expect to get back. And they, So why they, don't you explain that? How is price related to risk? Explain that to someone in kind of layman's terms. Like, how does that work? Like, the price you pay determines how much risk you take? I would say, so these are bonds that are going to pay off at 100 cents on the dollar, saving the credit considerations. That's what your expectation is. The voluntary prepayments would be 100 cents on the dollar. The question is with mortgages is the timing of them. The involuntary prepayment won't necessarily be at 100 cents, but there's an underlying asset there, so you've got to factor in loss severities. And you can look at it a couple of ways. I'll get you to the same thing. But if you let's look at a non-agency security that's priced at par, and it has 4% subordination. So you say, okay, that security has 4% subordination. 
Now, let's say that same security were priced at 90 cents on the dollar. One way to look at it would be that you actually have 14% subordination because you're paying 90 cents on the dollar. Right. So that extra 10 cents, that's 10% of losses one could take and and really get your money money back. Get your money back. Yes. Okay. So if you get your money back, I know you're not getting par, but you didn't pay par. Right. So... It's from that standpoint. And I'd almost call that AAA. I got back what I paid I, I plus some coupon along I, the way, I, I right? I agree. Yeah. I agree. Some of these, not today, but back in 08, 09, that some of those non-agency securities, I mean, they're trading at 50 cents on the dollar. And they Maybe had, they, what, what, 25% subordination uh, or 20? Uh, oh. On top of that, no. Unless they were the option arms. Okay. But, uh, no, okay. but less than okay. that. But still, okay. I mean, that's, if you pay 50%, that's a lot. That's fifty uh, percent. I would, I would, I would argue yeah. that they, they were effectively so. That, if you assume a fifty percent recovery on the house, that means everything could default and you get your money back. Yes, right. Yes. Okay. You could. Okay. So the rating agencies are—they're not really effective, uh, and we don't—we don't use them. We've never used them. As a matter of fact, we for a long time before it happened, we would rail against the rating agencies. Not even so much for that, but there's another aspect of it because they really have a corporate bond model, and they. The idea, the concept is, is, let's say you had two securities and let's say you had perfect foresights so you know what was going to happen and you knew that one of the securities was that 5% of it was going to default or you're going to lose 5% and the other security, you're going to lose 50%. Now, I wouldn't view those securities as being the same. To me, one's much riskier than the other. But from the rating agency standpoint, they're, they're the same because I'm not getting back 100 cents on the dollar. It's like... It's so, always probability default, not loss given default, right? Like, yes. That's the part that's never incorporated in. Yeah. So it is interesting to go through all these uh, ideas, you know, as we've been talking about the 10-year anniversary here. Let's go into the last part that we were talking about on these perils and concentration or lack of diversity. I think we were trying to put triple L's on there. But what do you think is the, the risk there, too? Because when you buy certain securities, do you sometimes you get inherent diversification properties, too. Is there too much reliance on perception of diversification too? Like people saying that, well, I own all these different credit markets, but they have different names on them, different monikers. And so I'm diversified, right? How do you think about that concentration and, and diversification within there? And what are some of the perils of thinking that you've learned over the years from the concentration side? I think of the three perils, I think it is the best understood the concentration. People can look and say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to limit myself to I'm not going to have any more than 5% Fords or I understand because I don't want I want to have diversification. They understand that. I guess to me the question is beyond just the specific name, are there correlations within a sector or sectors are they going to perform the same way? And that remains to be seen. I think one thing that I feel I'm a believer that asset prices are where they are. That I think markets are more manipulated now than they've ever been. And asset valuations are where they are now because of Fed policy, quantitative easing, the, the, putting these reserves in the system, which find a home. And scared and, to withdraw them. Until now, they are. They're trying to withdraw them. But they are. They're monitoring conditions. Sure. And I really think they are. And they, I think they learned something in 2000. 13 is that they don't want to dislocate markets. So I think that's the driving force from a spread standpoint. I'll stay on the fixed income side. Sure. And so I think that that sector will, I think a lot of those will perform the same way regardless of the name, just because of that's what's driving the boat. 
So we, you know, with, on the mortgage and structured product group that we do, we get our credit exposure, not through corporates, but through structured product. And we think there'll be correlation between the two sectors on a going forward basis. But we think that a few of the differences, I think there's a technical difference is just from a supply standpoint, is that the structured product market is, has actually shrunk, mainly because there's been no non-agency resis, uh, has shrunk over the past 10 years, whereas the corporate market has exploded. A lot of that is, you know, they're trying to raise money to do buybacks, and, you know, from that reason. But from a technical standpoint, we think that favors structured product relative to corporate. I think that there's a couple of other aspects. I think that with regard to structured product, not so much the negative on the corporate side, but on the structured product side is you know what you have and you can get your hands on it. You can do your analysis. You know what the borrowers are, who the borrowers are, and you know, you're going to make your determination of how they're going to behave in the future, but you know you should know what inputs you are and what you're basing it off of. Whereas but, some, but a cor- let me play the devil's advocate there. A corporate analyst would say, I know what Tesla is. I know what Ford is. I understand that credit. You, but you know what they are today. But will Tesla tomorrow be a car company or will they be a battery company? I don't know. They can change. They can change. I don't know. I don't know. They can change that. With the collateral and the structured product, that's there. You know what that collateral is. That's not changing. Right. So, so you still have a house a underneath there, or you have on a commercial house. side, yeah. you have these buildings that we see yeah. outside our windows. So, so I think right? that's. I think it's easier and it's more transparent. From actually, not that you're going to be able to know and predict whatever how everything's happened, but you you know what's in front of you. The asset they doesn't really change, right? It's really just more. You have something tangible behind yes. it. The, when you say collateral. It's not just the inventories for the desk and things inside. You're talking about physical properties or if you're talking about uh, ABS securities, you may have some airplane behind it or you know some sort of shipping rights and things like that. So you understand what that collateral is. Yes. Yeah, you, you feel like you have a better handle on it. Yes. Do you inherently get more diversity through that too? I think so. I think we do. I think within our structured product, we're very diversified, especially on the asset back side. There's a lot of different ways. And, and I do think that... I know there are, and and we see it in the mortgage space, in that some people don't like the uncertainty of cash flows of mortgage-backed restructured product. They like the certainty of corporates. And I actually argue that's a big part of the reason why the asset-backed market exists the way it does, was that it was ended up, it was really like a hybrid attempt to appease the corporate investors from a cash flow standpoint, but it has components of a of a structured product sure. type of investment. You have a hybrid amortization type thing, right? Yeah. Right. And and I think that, so there is more complexity and I think people, you know, I think it, it leads to a little bit more inefficiency because people perchance don't value it properly from what we could see. Yeah. Whereas like if you, like you talked about Tesla, it's like you may have an opinion of Tesla and I'm not going to say all the information is out there and you can interpret it one way and I can interpret it another way. But with regard to on the structured product side is I see what the collateral is and, and I know how I'm going to value it. And if you're saying, cause people are saying, I don't want it. I'm not going to touch it at any price, which makes it cheaper. Right. And so, so let's talk about price one more time. Cause we're kind of getting, getting uh, towards the end here. And I remember having conversation with you over 10 years ago before the Lehman thing. And Sam was out there saying, you know, to some of his analysis, like if house prices went down, things were in trouble. Uh, remember that and everybody going, what? Well, how can that be? And uh, I think at the time, what, what were they called? What were those uh, 400 different payments you could make? You have negative amortization. <laughs> what, what were those you, ones called? You had different payment options yeah. on your uh, mortgage statement. So they were called pay option arms. 
Yeah. So I remember saying, like, how the heck do you value that? Like, you got to break into the legs and then, you know, try to fit this out. And then the balance could grow. Like, imagine that your loan balance goes up as you're making mortgage payments, yeah. right? So that was something we really didn't touch and, and, you know, just never really thought there was a good price. Is there anything like that in the structured world today that you can see that's somewhat glaring to you that you think the price of risk is like, I think of pay option arm as a bull market product, right? People so, are calling them bulletproof. I mean, how often do you hear the term bulletproof too? So, aside yeah, to I usually cringe when I hear bulletproof. Yeah, bulletproof and makes, cheap. Yeah, it makes you want to go grab yeah. some Kevlar or something because it's probably not. But. There, I think there's a couple of interesting things about that market. The one of which, and this is sort of the natural evolution or de-evolution of a product, is that I believe that World Savings was the first originator of these. Of the pay option uh, the pay arms. option arms. Yeah. And they, if not the first, they were the first large-scale originator of them. And they actually, interestingly, they kept their loans. And the difference was between them and later versions was that the credit quality of their borrowers was very high. They had prime quality borrowers. But as things go on, people want to make more money, get greedier, and they start lowering the underwriting standards. And then it sort of went down towards the all day space and that was bad enough and then it actually got down almost effectively towards subprime now that's a really bad investor so that was that market and yeah that that was the poster child of easy money was you know you get the option arm you know hey buy get this arm and you don't really have to pay anything you right. can just sort of yeah, well yeah i mean why the housing market always goes up right yes, and so yes. so, so there's it's also, I mean we were talking about these things the the arms are really the intended audience the intended homeowner was for people who had lumpy incomes, people who had big bonuses year right. end. So, right. you know, maybe they pay the minimal balances and you know, for most of the year and then they put their big bonuses towards the house at the end. It was designed for a specific person in mind, but then when this market started getting a little greedy and then, wanting then paper, it became for another particular person, the one who couldn't, couldn't qualify couldn't afford, either, couldn't either. afford it otherwise, right? So, so, yeah. so get this though, you'll like this story. This was good. This because I think we actually bought some arms back at our old shop, I think they were like supers because they had 20% subordination. So you figure, okay, it's not that great of a credit, but you're getting 20% subordination. And they're, they're adjustable rate mortgages. I, I think we bought a couple of them. I know we certainly were looking at them. And, th- and then I remember we get one day we get the call from the person who we bought the other ones from. And he says that, well, we now have these super duper arms. <laughs> and it's the same, same credit. But instead of 20% subordination, we're going to give you 48% subordination. And guess what the cost of getting that extra 28% subordination was? I mean, it's got to be a few hundred basis points a year. I mean, look, I mean, you're talking about this cumulative loss over 30 years. I mean, yeah. I, that's just my simple math there. But uh, Yeah, I would probably, scientifically, it was... That's probably maybe worth... Especially if you know you're going to a bad environment, bad, bad, it would right, yeah. be worth more than that. Right. One basis point. One basis point. So it, you got all. one basis point less yield yes, to, get, to get an additional 28%. Too expensive. Yeah. Too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, obviously, that's what people were saying yeah. because yeah, people exactly. weren't doing it. Right. And just so you know, I think cumulatively, option arms have lost around 20%. So that's right. So the supers cost. work. <laughs> the supers didn't right. lose a penny. So. Right. You know, that's the, that's what we call selling the, the put spread, right? The, no one thinks it's going to go below that other one. So it's like, oh, you're just wasting money. Waste, wasted right. that basis point. Yeah. So it's stuff gets misvalued, mispriced. Another thing, this actually, I was just reading this recently. This has to do with the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie. And this somewhat related, Boston Fed. You're talking yeah. about Fed. Boston Fed did a study 
and they were looking at Fannie and Freddie and Ophia. Ophio. O F H E O. Yeah. Office of Federal Housing Equal Opportunity. Let's just say. There you go. So that's o- like that. It's like FHA now. It was Correct. the pre- or precursor to FHA. 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 Yeah. So based on this study that they basically said was that the so that you got a stress test. I mean, you've got a stress test. Now the question is, when you stress test, what what numbers do you use? And right. that's for your you to determine. So Ophia was doing stress testing on Fannie and Freddie to find out about their solvency, and, and this was this was pre-crisis. In the stress test case, so we're stress testing. I mean, they have mortgage assets, so we're gonna we're gonna look at real estate valuations going down. In their stress test case, they had real estate prices going up for the next eighteen months. Wait, what? Wait, wait. The that stress, was their stress case? That was so, their stress so the stress case. is up. 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 Okay. So it's like hmm, that's not really much of a stress if you have it going up. So, but that's. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. You're trying to predict the future. You're oftentimes you don't have a point of reference. So, and so you know we do it. You know you mentioned probabilities. We look at probabilities, but you also have to look at possibilities. Right. And it's like that black swan event. It's you know, is it going to happen? It's not probably not going to happen. But if it does happen, how are things going to be? Right. Made? I think someone once told me probability versus plausibility. Right. And people assign probabilities to plausibility, but they forget that things are completely plausible outside of that. Yes. Right? Yes. Right? Yeah. So bull market product, that sounds like, you know, from the yes. standpoint that worst case is that house price only go up a few percent. Yes. Yeah. Right. Do you see anything like that out there today? Anything that you think, forget the whole credit market. Is there any products out there you feel that haven't been through the ringer, haven't had the proper, at least empirical stress testing that's from a market perspective? There's one. You always have something. See, that, that's why that's why you're a repeat guest. You, know? <laughs> you, you always can pull something out. And it's not that it's going to happen, but it's quite, but if, plausible it could happen mm-hmm. and it's a market that's growing and quite large quite quickly and that's actually could be part of the problem and it's this the crt market credit okay. transfer which so is, what is that and for our audience members so fannie and freddie have been mandated or in the process of being mandated you know they're being restructured we don't know how that's going to work out but washington's getting their hands on them and they want to reduce risk to the taxpayer and one They're going to be the best Fannie and the best Freddie yes, ever, right? Yes. yes, that's okay. And one of the ways to do it is to create a privately held first loss piece, and that's where credit CRTs, credit risk transfer. And I believe that the the thought is because there was over four trillion dollars worth of Fannie and Freddie securities, and I believe the thought is that there probably will be probably about a five percent privately held first loss piece market. So when all of the some point down the road, when all of the Fannies and Freddies have have paid off and new ones have been issued, they're, you're going to have, you'll have a $200 billion market. So this is just a, another, it's like a little strip or residual that sits on the bottom after you get these yes. pools of assets that helps essentially the guarantor fee, right? That's kind of, you're, you're passing that guarantor fee onto an investor who buys a CRT asset. Yes. Yeah. And that's a mouthful, I know, for if those of you that aren't following along there, but okay. Well, let's just go to some of the, because they have, they have, Different tranches in their in their structure, that, and, yeah. and and I think like in aggregate, it's around four percent. Does this bring back memories of something we talked about a little bit earlier? And it's well, don't worry because this is really good collateral. Well, when they started the when the rating agencies did the four percent back in the eighties, it was really good collateral. So sounds like history's rhyming. And, and, yeah, right? and the thing is. That, and there's slivers that they have, even the first 
Keep in mind also that when did we like that extra layer of subordination comes about with dollar price lower. It's like we don't like 4% subordination, but when the, you know, when the price is lower, then you're picking up that. But something price to par, you don't have that incrementally. You, all you're relying on is that 4%. So the thing is, is that those securities, because guess what? You have a lot of exposure to the housing market. Now, they've been issuing them for the past couple of years. And so for the past couple of years, real estate has gone up. So the ones that came out a couple of years ago, not only do they have their subordination, but now they've got housing price appreciation and they've been upgraded from a rating standpoint. And now you have the empirical data point, which says they don't default, right? And so that means the probability is zero, right? So it goes down to housing price. You know, I know it's crazy, but at some point housing prices could go down. And if they go down, it's that's really the problem in and of itself in the fact that they, there's not that much subordination. But then I'm going to layer on top of that one aspect, and that's sort of the technical, of not to the same magnitude of the, the non-agency market in 08, but the non-agency market in 08 was a market that that was, for the preceding seven years, it had grown massively. And so you had, and supposedly there was a lot of liquidity. Oh, by the way, did I tell you there's a lot of liquidity in this market? It grew massively, but you got to the point when the buyers in a market become the sellers, it could be a problem. And the problem, I guess, it could sort of stop because that's when the, uh, the merry-go-round stopped and people had to get off. And that's why it didn't grow from that point. But you're trying to, and I'm sure they were trying to grow it beyond that point. What else can we securitize? I'm talking about back in 2008. Is that, okay, now we've got everyone who's conceivably could buy these security, owns them, and now they're being forced to sell them. Who are they going to sell them to? And so that is sort of my concern. It's not my base case because I think real estate is maybe fairly valued, but I think it not that I'm expecting it to go down 10%. So if it's, if it stays where it is, it's okay. And even a 10% decline, these borrowers, if they're good, it doesn't mean that that means those securities go down. It's just that it also lets people have the ability to think about defaulting it's, or walking away and things like that. So right? those, when we were high-fiving ourselves at the end of 2007, when we bought a security that had pristine collateral because it was trading in the low 90s and it, we didn't think it was going to lose any money and it didn't lose any money, but it's still the next year traded down at 70 cents on the dollar. Right, right. So it's, that's why we don't high-five on the trading desk very much anymore, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's a scenario. And it's to me, it's not that outlandish of a scenario. And, and how am I getting compensated? For, or am I getting compensated for that? And I would argue it's not. I don't think you are at all. So, Yeah, yeah but see, the, Joe, this is why we love having you around, too, because it takes this experience, it takes these anecdotes to impart wisdom on people who have only seen a bull market, right? We used to joke that, you know, most managers out there had never seen the Fed raise rates, raise rates you know, yes. right? Yeah. And so these are the things that people will call you old or antiquated or you're not in the new thinking or whatever. But it all kind of comes back, you know, it, like we said, history rhymes, doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. And it is important to ask these questions. And uh, so that's why I really want to talk about this time where we've kind of turned it uh, as, as collective investors. We don't think as much about risk. I think, you know, people... We've had such a good equity run and yeah. bond markets have been okay. There hasn't been really some big debacle. I'm like, oh, well, 10 years ago, just think how different it was. But it doesn't mean next year we won't be talking about how horrible the world is, yeah. right? And so it is important. And so thanks for coming back and mm -hmm. talking to us. We really appreciate it. But uh, just because you're a repeat guest doesn't mean you get you don't get to get away from uh, 
the Sherman Says component. Oh, so, I I gift. no. Well, know. the gift is the, the gift, gift is, is Sherman Says. The gift is our fourteen listeners are going to hear this again. <laughs> yeah, that's the gift too, yeah, and that includes God, your family. Twenty-one people. Now. <laughs> oh, ooh, okay, good. So, um, Sam, why don't you remind them the rules, and that way we can wrap this thing up. All right, Joe. So I'm going to give you a term, and you're going to give me a response. And I alternate between Jeff Sherman and yourself. And I'm going to start with Sherman with Bill Belichick. Darth Vader. Are these supposed to be one-word answers? Oh, they- yeah. I guess he's the emperor, right? Because that's the e- more evil. Even more evil. Yeah. Yeah. Big evil. Yeah. Ryder Cup. Exciting. Wages. 2.9%. Uh, <laughs> I want to say, will we see a three-handle? I want to ask a question back on it. Will we see a three-handle? And if so, how does the bond market react? That's the number I want to see. If you ever see a three, if you see a three handle, three well, handle, it won't react well to that. I don't think so. If but the two, n- the two nine, it, it took pretty well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we get off topic sometimes Sorry. here. So mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like I almost asked fleece vest again, but uh, I did. <laughs> hideous. So, anyway. For those of you who don't recall, hideous. <laughs> All right, so back to Joe. Mortgage prepayments slow. Sherman marijuana stocks lit. Favorite cereal. It's got to be something favorite. It's got to be Sugar favorite. Don, Don, what you're supposed Three to snacks. eat. Oh, what would I do? <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know what came instinctively came to my mind was tricks. That's what you got to say. It's tricks. Tricks. Yeah, it. tricks are for kids. kids. <laughs> Pumpkin spice lattes. No. How do you like your steak? Slightly pink. In other, see, some places that's medium. Some places yeah, that's medium. Say, say, that's why I said slightly pink. I don't. Okay. Do. It's kind of medium plus. You can't put a tick on the uh, meat order, you know? <laughs> right? a, we traded that one medium plus. NAFTA. <laughs> Mexico. Recession risk. Inevitable. Non-existent. <laughs> and you, never. Yeah. U.S. consumer? Okay. They're doing well. And final one, Brexit. Inevitable. What what was the name of that mortgage company? Was it Rock something? You talking about Irish Ireland? Yeah, no, was it Irish or was it a UK one? The first one that actually went down went down before like Lehman and all that. If you recall, I think Rock is in the name. Yeah, it's something Rock. But uh, anyway, we'll we'll look that up for later. But anyway, thanks for joining us, Joe. Once okay. again, that was Joe Galligan, Executive Vice President here at Double Line, and of course we have Sam Lau, a Portfolio Manager, with us here at Double Line, and I'm Jeff Sherman. Thanks for tuning in. We'll come back with the next episode of Sherman's Challenge soon. Thanks for tuning in. You can get us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and any of your other favorite apps out there. Thanks again. You can also reach us at shermanshow at doubleline.com for feedback. Keep up all those emails that you're sending us. Thanks so much. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line.
DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.